Like a backstage pass to the world of fly fishing travel, this is Waypoints, the podcast of destination angling. News and events, helpful travel tips, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from some of the most seasoned and experienced names in fishing travel. Waypoints is brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, the industry's number one specialty travel company for the very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered for your next fishing adventure. And now, your Waypoints host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. We're back for the second episode in our two-part series on Cuba, where we are joined once again by Kristen Tripp, Yellow Dog Fly Fishing's program director for Cuba. Kristen is hands down the most knowledgeable person in the game when it comes to both traveling in and fishing Cuba. And she's an incredible resource when it comes to planning or researching a trip to this interesting and at times complicated island nation. In our first episode, we talked about what's involved in traveling to the country, the logistical and legal challenges that have to be navigated, and the current state of affairs in Cuba. We also covered the legalities and regulations, how to best get to Cuba, who should go, and what to expect when traveling in country. In this second Cuba episode, we're shifting gears and focusing more on the actual fishing in Cuba. We'll discuss the individual fishing destinations and location options throughout the country, the best time of the year to fish Cuba, primary species available, the differences between live-aboard operations and land-based programs, and of course, we'll talk gear, equipment, and flies. So Kristen, welcome back for the second episode of our two-part show on Cuba. In our last episode, we talked in detail about the ins and outs of traveling to Cuba. Now we need to go deep on the actual fishing aspects of Cuba to give our listeners there's the lowdown on why Cuba is such an amazing destination for the saltwater angler. Well, thanks, Jim. Now we get into the really fun stuff. That's right. <laughs> you know, we got the uh, all the legalese and the complicated OFAC jargon and the regulatory talk done in the first episode. Now we can get into the nitty gritty of the actual fishing in Cuba. Absolutely. Well, first off, it's important to understand that, that Cuba as a fishing option is not a single location. In fact, a lot of people don't really comprehend just how big Cuba is as a country. You know, the main island of Cuba is 1,780 miles long. It's more than 40,000 square miles in size, the largest island in the Caribbean, and actually the 17th largest island on the planet. It's pretty, it's pretty astounding, isn't it? <laughs> it it's big. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. It actually takes, I think if you were to drive from Guanacajibes, which is all the way in the Western province to Guantanamo, it would take you 18 hours. Now that's assuming you didn't get held up by some horse-drawn carts, broken down <laughs> tractors, or behind a 1955 Chevy that wasn't running so hot. <laughs> that's right. That, that would be 18 hours if you drove and didn't, you know, could find gas stations oh, and well, fuel. That too, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, well, what's what's crazy about Cuba is the main island. So Cuba is actually an, an archipelago that's made up of nearly 4,200 islands and tiny keys, all which surround the main island of Cuba. So there's a massive amount of land and as a result, a huge and massive network of flats and healthy marine ecosystems that surround the entire island. Those are the, the types of statistics that may make most anglers uh, start to salivate a little bit. <laughs> 4,200 keys. That's yeah. amazing. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's a huge area. The The main island itself is massive, as we talked about in the earlier episode. Uh, it's home to almost 11.5 million people yeah. uh, on what is the largest island in the Caribbean. Well, and one of the things about Cuba that I find so interesting is because of the communist developments, there are not people everywhere. There's a tremendous amount of green space as you drive across the country, be it sugarcane fields, etc. But most of the established cities and towns, that's where the people are living. So it doesn't feel hyper-populated outside of Havana by any means. Yeah. And uh, still a lot of open space for sure. Uh, I think it's important when we're talking about fishing down there that our listeners realize there are a lot of choices when it comes to selecting where to fish in Cuba. And we're actually going to walk through those different options here in just a moment. But you need to realize that this isn't like going to, say, Ascension Bay in the Yucatan or maybe Turnip Atoll in Belize, where the, the area itself may be quite large. But for the most part, you're kind of fishing one 
general location. You know, the main island of Cuba, and, and we'll put it in perspective here, it is nine times the size of the state of Connecticut, right? It's four times the size of the entire state of Massachusetts. And it's pretty much the exact same size as the entire state of Pennsylvania. So when you think about, hey, I'm going to go to Pennsylvania, I'm going to go fishing. It's like, well, it's a big state. You know, right. you can kind of go all over. It's the same with Cuba. It's not just kind of one general area where you focus when you go Cuba. It's spread out all across the main island and the offshore ecosystems. And there's a lot of options. There are a lot of options. And, you know, to that end, I get a lot of anglers who say, well, where would you go? And, and I say, well, that's. That's not a fair question because we're not talking about my trip. We're talking about your trip. And oftentimes I, I have to ask some clarifying questions for anglers about what kind of species they might be interested in targeting, how long they have for their trip, and what their preferences are and what time of year they want to go. All of those factors sort of help me craft and point people in the right direction. Yeah, because there are a lot of great options. And, there are. And not necessarily any wrong answers. I mean, they're no. all really special. They're just different. Absolutely. Yeah, and we're going to break those down here in a minute. But it's it's interesting to note that of the main fishing areas that are the focus of traveling anglers, uh, all of these areas have been set up, protected, and, and essentially managed for angling. Uh, but a lot of people may not realize that there are only a, a couple of outfitters that have control over these areas. And in essence, there's really one outfitter. There's one big one who's been in business the longest, and that's Avalon. And we represent Avalon. We also represent Fly Fishing the Run. And we represent a third entity um, that's only been in business down there for four or five years off the southern coast of Cuba in the Bay of Pigs. Um, but we represent everybody, and we're, we, we appreciate the ability to be able to do that yeah. And, and Avalon, um, they've been, uh, I mean, they got their start back in like 2000. They're going on about 25 years of operation. They're the big dog down yep. there. They have the most control. They're the main operator in Cuba and they have the exclusive operational access to many of the top fisheries and the destinations throughout the country. Um, talk to us a little bit about Avalon, how that works and, and how it is they have these areas kind of sewn up. Well, they were one of the first concessions into Cuba at a time when um, they were looking to be able to diversify offerings and visitors in these marine protected areas. So they essentially have the exclusive concession to fish and operate not only the, the liveaboard programs, but some of the land-based and the skiffs that operate within them, they serve as patrols and almost rangers in those particular fisheries and marine protected areas. But they are really the biggest name in, in, in Cuba and they do a fabulous job for our anglers. And they do fishing, which is obviously what you deal with. They also do dive operations, which are pretty large for them. They do. And occasionally I do have couples or I do have anglers who are interested in mixing in some diving. However, the diving opportunities and operations are largely relegated to one particular fishery, which is, which we'll talk about shortly. Yeah. But these guys, uh, they've, they've earned and maintained these concessions. Obviously they pay for them. Um, but there's a really cool kind of conservation aspect of what they're doing down there. You mentioned acting as rangers and kind of patrols in these marine areas to, you know, protect against poaching or legal fishing, things like that. But they're also doing quite a bit of research down there and they've really built up those conservation efforts over the years as their business operations have grown. Absolutely. They, through the diving and through the university, they, in Havana, they, they do a lot of marine research and, whether or not you're a numbers guy or not, when you go down to Cuba or a numbers guy or gal, it doesn't matter. Your guides can account your fish on a daily basis because it goes into a larger bank of information and data collection, which is part of your obligation as an angler when you fish down there. Nice. Well, I want to break down and talk about these specific location options and the different destinations throughout Cuba. But first, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the common species that are generally found throughout Cuba and throughout these areas. For saltwater, we, of course, have the big three that are yep. found pretty much everywhere. Tarpon, permit, and bonefish. That, the Grand Slam combo. That's why there's you go. A, that's why you go. There's also there's also snook. There's cuda. There's huge snapper. Um Kuberas, you've got Goliath groupers, which you're not allowed to catch, by the way. So you're probably not going to on the fly anyway, but they're out there. 
Um, there's tremendous fish diversity. And, and honestly, when I speak to anybody about going to Cuba, I say, Hey, you know, don't get too attached to a certain species. If you want to have the best possible trip, go with a catching attitude and cast to whatever you want. Sharks, there's jacks, there's all sorts of diversity. And more than likely the species that you find or catch may be some of the bigger, bigger specimens that you've caught so far, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, and and people definitely get fixated on kind of the Grand Slam, you know, mm-hmm. Bones, Permit, Tarpon, and it is really good typically for all three of those species. But as you said, have an open mind, you know, go after anything that'll put a bend in the rod because the diversity down in these areas, especially in these pristine ecosystems in these marine areas, is as impressive as anything you'll find in the Caribbean. Absolutely. Um, well, let's talk through it. And actually, before we do that, I, I will mention that while all of your destinations currently revolve around um, saltwater angling and flats fishing. Um, There are some really cool freshwater opportunities in Cuba. Um, We've explored some of them over the years, um, chasing largemouth bass in some of these inland reservoirs on the main island. Um, So there may be some potential out there in the future as as this uh, continues to develop for uh, bass anglers and freshwater anglers that are you know willing to look to some other species as well. Absolutely. We we offered that program a number of years ago and currently it's not offered, but it is definitely out there and of course as you know, Cuba still I think holds what the world record for the world's largest black bass caught ever? Yeah, they they're up there. Um, it's an interesting history, and uh, I first learned about it reading one of Monty Burke's books about uh, the quest for the world record largemouth, which is a fantastic book, by the way. But um, I think it's called Sow Belly is the name of that book. But his closing chapter is a visit to Cuba, um, having done a lot of historical research on fishing in the you know 30s and 40s and 50s in Cuba. It was a big time destination for serious bass anglers. In the 20s, they had stocked a lot of these big cane reservoirs with Florida strain largemouth bass, which immediately took to the ecosystem down there, grew to huge sizes, and for serious trophy bass anglers during those decades, a lot of people flocked to Cuba specifically for the largemouth. Well. After the revolution, you know, who knows what happened? No one was going down there and fishing anymore. Um, but several years ago, um, uh, my buddy Tom Bai from the Drake magazine, he and I and a professional tournament bass angler named Chris Hart went down and, and spent about a week and a half visiting some of these inland fisheries and chasing bass. And, and we found some amazing bass fishing. Now, as you mentioned, the infrastructure isn't quite there yet, but there are opportunities and uh, remains to be seen what the future will hold for freshwater opportunities in Cuba. But let's, let's get back to saltwater. <laughs> That's Cuba part three down the road. <laughs> yeah, down the road. We'll talk about that. Um, so we, we've got bonefish, permit tarpon. They're, they're kind of found all throughout the air, the saltwater fisheries of Cuba. You've got snook. You've got that other diversity of species. Let's go through the main destination options down there. And on a podcast, it's hard because we don't have a map that we can show people. But you know, if you want to, you know, break out a map or, or pull one up on your screen and follow along, we're going to talk about the different fisheries and the different choices you have. We're going to go over each location, um, talk about the type of program it is, the overall setup, and more. Let's start, Kristen, with the operations that are off the southern coast of the main island of Cuba. These are um, probably the most popular known areas, and there's quite a few down there. Um, The first one, which is Jardines de la Reina. Jardines de la Reina, which translates into the Gardens of the Queen, Um, a throwback to Cuba's history and relationship with Spain, of course, and named as such. Um, So the Gardens of the Queen is sort of the bucket list trip if you want to go and do one and only one trip ever to Cuba. It's uh, a set of keys off the southern coast of Cuba, 60 miles off the southern coast of Cuba, that is the same size as the entire Florida Keys. But you have a fraction of the boats. There's no weekend warriors coming down from Miami to fish in these keys. A so, fraction of a fraction. Like a fraction of a fraction, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's three different big boat operations down there. And they go in numbers, Avalon 2, Avalon 3, and Avalon 4. And Avalon 4 is the biggest of the three yachts down there. It serves as a liveaboard out in the fishery. You get picked up in Hooker Port. You motor out to the fishery and you use that as your base for the entire week. Um, 
it's usually a combination of both anglers and divers. So if you're just yourself or two of you, or there's a smaller group of like four, that's where I'm going to be able to place you. Now, if you have the opportunity to go down with a big group of buddies or perhaps working through us and a local shop who, who wants to work with Yellow Dog, we can totally, we can totally do that. And you can put together a, a group of 12 to 16, then Avalon 2 and Avalon 3 are great choices. They split that fishery into three different zones. So it's not like on any given week, all of those anglers are going to be all on top of each other and you're going to come around a corner and everybody, you know, you and 12 of your new best buddies are all having lunch and fishing to the same permit. They do a really good job at making sure that you move throughout the fishery and you fish a rotation so that A, there's not too much pressure in any one area, and B, everybody has the opportunity to fish in each different portion of the fishery. And this really, the the Hardinas is really kind of the flagship operation in Cuba. This is where it all started. This is still where they they host the largest number of anglers every year. And as you said, this is an area that if you were to take an overlay of the Gardens of the Queen and set it over a map of the Keys, it's, it's slightly larger than the entire Florida Keys. Yeah. And- they've broken it up into three different zones. So they've got three different operations that operate simultaneously in totally separate areas throughout the Hardinas on a given week. And uh, all three are liveaboards. Yep. Yep. The food is stellar. The staff are amazing. They take really great care and really great pride of making sure that you're happy, well-fed, accommodated. You have clean laundry if you need it. And of course, cold cocktails upon arrival. (laughs) After a day of on the water. Always nice. <laughs> Always nice. Yeah. What are the main draws of the JDR fisheries? So JDR is fantastic and really well known for its tarpon, especially during the tarpon migration. Now, the migration seasons and dates seem to be shifting a little bit and changing a little bit, um, pushing perhaps a little bit earlier into April. We're finding fish that are showing up late April and really running all the way into early July. Um, you'll have you'll have tarpon that are the migratory bigger fish in larger numbers in that fishery. But I'd say that you know the fishery as well offers a tremendous number of small residential tarpon. So even if you were to go down and say January, February, you'd still have a shot at tarpon those off season times of year. Um, there are some massive permit out there and I've seen anglers produce some really, really big permit in that fishery. Although I would say that those permit, even though they're Cuban permit, they're much like any, any permit anywhere else in the world. They tend to be particular about flies and who knows what they're eating and why or what, or why they're not. We talk about that a lot on the show. That seems to be a recurring theme. We, right? we are on the constant quest for, for the place on the planet that has dumb, easy permit. Cuba's we still haven't it. found it. No. <laughs> not it. Still haven't found it anywhere on the planet. Um, the bone fishery down there is phenomenal. And I actually, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, spoke with an angler that came back and said he was flabbergasted at seeing a school of bonefish that was the size of a football field out there. He just could not get over the phenomena and the experience of seeing that many fish in one school. Um, not to say that that's a promise delivery for everybody, but there's some stellar bonefish out there and you can get really decent size, you know, five, six pound plus is not unheard of. Um, so it's a really nice fishery for a great diversity of species. And, um, you know, you're in a marine wilderness off the Southern coast of Cuba, which couldn't be cooler than anything I can think of from an experience standpoint, you know, if you have a bucket list trip, this is really one to put in the mix. Well, I remember this is probably eight or 10 years ago, but um, Anderson Cooper on CNN did a, a special on the marine ecosystems in Cuba and specifically the health of their coral reefs. And he did it in comparison to the reefs, you know, just slightly north in the Florida Keys and um, compared the the health of the two ecosystems. And he filmed based in the Hardinas, yep. um, did a lot of diving and a lot of camera work down there. And it's just, it's a stellar ecosystem, as it's you said. extraordinary. They have unique forms of coral that are really healthy there that you can only see there. So again, worth bringing a mask and a snorkel and ducking your head under the water to check out what's under there. Um 
And, you know, the other thing that you'll you'll see a lot of, and if you're aboard Avalon 4 with some of the, these divers, you're going to be subjected to their endless videos of all the tarpon you didn't catch because they're way down here at the bottom of this channel. <laughs> but there's a tremendous number of black tip reef shark, sharks in that fishery. And as you and I know, healthy sharks are a healthy indicator of a really healthy ecosystem. That's so right. a lot of divers travel there specifically to dive with those black tip reef sharks and there are plenty and and uh jacques Cousteau did a lot of work down there back in like the 80s i think it was early 80s was down in the hardinas quite a bit doing uh, his programs he spent quite a bit of time on his boat calypso with his little two-man submarine that you had to lay on your belly with these little tiny windows to look out of but he uh he wearing a speedo and chain smoking cigarettes (laughs) warming up with his little red beanie afterwards But no, he really did a tremendous amount of exploring in the in the mid 80s. And all of those uh, resources are actually available on YouTube. And for anybody who's curious as to what the fishery actually might look like under the water, go check those that Anderson Cooper and that Jacques Cousteau flick out They're They're pretty, pretty cool. Well, how do how do anglers access Hardinas uh, de la Reina? How do they get there? So there's a couple different options. Really the easiest, and we mentioned, we talked about this in the first episode about Cuba and logistics, but really the easiest is to fly into Comagüey, which is about two and a half hours from Hookah Port. All the programs, all of these liveaboard programs, and really all the fishing programs that are available in Cuba are Saturday to Saturday programs. So it's important important to make sure that you have a full week to offer. Um, This particular destination, the easiest way is to fly into Comagüey. You can board the boat the same day as your arrival flight. On the departure, you can actually fly back out of Comagüey and find yourself back in Miami midday, which typically will get you all the way home on that same departure day. Um, another option, if you want to do the cultural aspect, um, and this used to be sort of the bitter pill that anglers who, uh, were traveling all the way to JDR had to swallow because of flights only going into Havana back in the day is you could fly into Havana overnight in Havana, and then do an eight hour bus ride to get to Hukuro before you board the boat. Some of my travelers this year have opted to kind of have their have their cake and eat it too and fly into Havana and enjoy some extra time there, do the bus drive, spend the week aboard and then fly out via Comagüey. So you can do that, that arrangement as well. And if you haven't driven across Cuba before, it's kind of interesting to see. It, it really is. is. You're guaranteed to yeah. see some sugar cane fields. That's for sure. Yeah. By, by your second or third <laughs> trip down there, that, that eight hour bus ride can get a little bit long. True. But first time it's interesting. It is for sure. All right. So that's, that's JDR, the three different live aboard programs in the gardens of the queen. That's the flagship operation. What's our, what's our next destination and option in Cuba? So if we go moving west off the southern coast of Cuba, you're going to run into this big, beautiful, long key called Cayo Largo. Long key, translated directly. It has a beach off the southern coast that's phenomenal. It's about a mile and a half long of a ribbon of white sand. It's just extraordinary. Um, Years ago, this was a land-based option. You used to plop into Havana and then fly over to, in one of those shoddy Cuban airplanes, fly over to Cayo Largo. Um, I don't know. There's still holes in the runway on Cayo Largo. I think they're repairing it. I wouldn't get your hopes up that flights are going to resume there anytime soon. So the way that this program works is you fly into Havana, you spend uh, the night in Havana, and then two and a half hour drive to a little tiny port outside of the Bay of Pigs where you board the boat for the week and then motor into the fishery. This is a live aboard as well. A live aboard program as well. Yep. Um, Cayo Largo is called, nicknamed the permit capital of Cuba. And, you know, you've fished there as well. So I don't know. I, I think that that's a, a good name for it, but I think it's a little bit of a misnomer because there still is tremendous species diversity offered in Cayo Largo as well. The one thing that, that Cayo Largo has always been known for, and again, this doesn't happen every week in the season, but it's very common to find permit feeding on the back of stingrays. And as we all know, for the permit anglers listening, that's like the golden ticket. Um, they're still going to be difficult, but they're on the back of those rays for a reason. They're feeding. Typically, they're kind of nose down, preoccupied with gobbling anything that falls into their little cone of vision. Uh, and it can be a really good way to come tight on permit. And that's what Cayo Largo offers. They typically offer good numbers of fish, but permit on rays, which is something that's really special and not found everywhere. 
Plus, it gives you something to target, right? The big black ray yeah. somewhere over there. <laughs> yeah, aim for the, the thing that looks like a tire. Yeah, put it right on its back. But uh, yeah, as you said, there's there's good tarpon fishing, great permit fishing, and there's some really big bone fish as well. Big bones. And then there's also some really fantastic snook fishing in there. I mean, some of those mangroves are super pristine. And if, you know, if you get the right zone on the right day, then you really have an opportunity to be able to um, to target some really nice size snook. Absolutely. So Kyle Largo, another live aboard option, about a two and a half hour direct drive down from Havana. You board the boat and you start your week. Yeah. It's worth mentioning as well that when you're booking this particular live aboard, you want to come up with at least six anglers before you've got commitment for this boat. They don't take single or double anglers on the Kyle Largo program. So you had mentioned the fact that sometimes we host trips and we offer hosted opportunities on trips like Cayo Largo and the Isle of Youth, which I'll talk about briefly here um, in a minute. But those trips are really, you know, when you see a hosted trip opportunity as a single angler to be able to join one of those trips, that's the way to do it. Unless you have an intact group or can can do a full yacht buyout, you need at least a half yacht, which is six anglers for Cayo Largo. All right. Good dimension. So Cayo Largo. What's our next Southern Coast fishery? So moving west of Cayo Largo, if you look at the map, you're going to see a whole bunch of little tiny keys that, again, will make any angler start drooling based on channels and rivers and cuts that you see in there and the white sand. Um, you get into the keys that end up with the big island, the Isle of Youth, the Isla de la Juventud. And if you've got an old, old enough map, you'll see the Isle of Pines, which was its initial name. Um, there's a little bit of history there, and I know that you and I are both very fond of a visit to Isle, the the proper Isle of Youth, which unfortunately is no longer a part of the program, but it's a pretty unique opportunity. This fishery, the, and I'm going to sort of go back and forth a little bit here because we've got Cayo Largo and the Isle of Youth and all the keys in between. Isla de la Juventud is a tarpon program, and it is so tarpon focused. These that if there's one trip that you ever do that is just like I want to catch as many tarpon and in all sizes and in all manners of tarpon fishing, then Juventud is where it's at. Um, the guides aren't afraid to pull out sink tips or intermediate lines to get it done. They know tarpon fishing like the back of their hands, and for whatever reason, that particular fishery between the Isle of Youth and east of those keys is just full of tarpon, both residential and migratories. Um, so again, that's a liveaboard program. You go through Havana, do the same thing as you do for Cayo Largo, boarding out of um, Sepesca Port, which is in the Bay of Pigs, and then you motor into the fishery. And what I really love, aside from the tarpon fishing and the program in that particular fishery and the Cayo Largo fishery is that every night you moor in a different location, depending upon conditions, of course, so that's not a guarantee, but it means that you start at one end of the fishery and you fish that end and then you move forward and every night you're mooring in a different location, which just provides a really sort of exploratory feel to that particular trip. Um, there are still permit opportunities and bonefish opportunities and opportunities for CUDA and lots of diversity. But when somebody says, hey, I just want to catch tarpon like all day long, really want to focus on them. That's really where I tried to try to send them if there's an opportunity or I send them out to Avalon 4 in JDR. Good to know. So that's uh, Isla de la Juventud, yep. Isle of Youth. What's now, next? Brid bridging the gap between those and in the off season, which is essentially November, December, and into January, I think actually we add, I, I'm remiss in adding a couple fall months there. I think October it starts. There's a relatively new program, <clears throat> which honestly is fantastic. And it's one that I have not yet done, but I think would be a really cool one to do. It's a liveaboard program, so you need to come up again with a group of six or 12, and it's called Canareos. And if you look at a map, you're going to see all those keys in between Juventud and Cayo Largo. They'll say Archipelago de Canareos, right, which is a mouthful for anybody. Um, this liveaboard trip has one liveaboard boat, six skiffs. It covers the entire Cayo Largo and Juventud fisheries with only that one boat boat for the entire week during the fall and early winter season correct yeah so it's before your juventude and your Cayo largo seasons really get into full swing yeah and and we've fished these these keys and these waters quite a few times yes 
Um, it's moving as far west as you can from Cayo Largo and as far east from Juventud. So these waters are definitely fished in two separate programs during the main part of the season and what's considered peak spring and early summer season. But during the fall and winter, they combined the two on this new liveaboard operation, which is very recent. Very recent and really a tremendous opportunity to cover a lot of ground, get tremendous diversity. Now, granted, you're not going to have any of those migratory tarpon in the fishery. I don't think it's going to be a problem as far as tarpon go. You're still going to see plenty of fish. Um, they just won't be the triple digit single girls laid up on the flats, you know, resting after being harassed for the evening. <laughs> Sounds like Havana. <laughs> well, <It might> be. <laughs> well, that's, that's a new one and that's pretty exciting. And same access point, about a two and a half hour drive south from Havana to Porto Zapesca, mm -hmm. board the boat and head right out to the fishery. Exactly, exactly. So nice Havana, Havana entry, Havana departure. Um, the next operation that I want to mention, and which also starts out of Zapesca, if you look at the main, pro main island of Cuba and you look off the southern coast directly south of Havana, you're going to see this peninsula that looks like a boot. And off the heel of the boot, that is the Bay of Pigs. Um, that is called the Zapata Peninsula, that big boot-shaped peninsula. And what's really unique about that particular peninsula is it's, um, in Spanish, they call it a cienaga, which translates literally into swamp. But it's very, very much like the um, Florida panhandle, both before dewatering and before all the issues that have have occurred in Florida. There's these tremendous freshwater springs within the Zapata Peninsula that feed these channels and feed tremendous not only bird diversities, but bug diversity, tree species, the whole nine yards. That flows then into the um, southern waters and provides some really interesting and dynamic fishing, um, both at Las Salinas Flats at the heel of the boot and then in the arch of the boot, you're dealing with Zapata, which is a liveaboard program for eight anglers and which also moves through the fishery. So two different operations. Las Salinas Flats is a land-based operation. You, ba you base in the Bay of Pigs, and that's the one destination where every night you can go out and enjoy Don Alexis' uh, amazing paladar and his tremendous cooking skills. Um, stay in more of an Airbnb type of uh, accommodations and then take a 45 minute trip every day to get out to the saltwater flats or a 45 minute trip to get to a river environment for tarpon. So then you move west of that in the Zapata Peninsula and you're on a liveaboard boat called the Zapata. And this area of Cuba is, is spectacular because the Zapata Swamp, it's like Cuba's Everglades. It is. And the, uh, you know, the, the ecosystem that's created from all that fresh water running into that southern coast provides amazing habitat. You know, tarpon, as you said, um, you know, in uh, Las Salinas, you find in Zapata, both you find some great permit, bonefish, there's snook. Uh, it's just a really unique place in Cuba and, and one that is rarely visited by anyone. It's true. And those the Zapata liveaboard program, it maxes out at eight anglers per week. You can fit more on the boat, but it's a really small, intimate group. And they do a unique rotation of both double and single occupancy fishing. So you've got these single occupancy skiffs um, that allow you to get back into the lagoons to be able to chase some of those bones. Um, the interesting thing about that as well is the water color is almost like a tea color. It's very tannic. And so the bonefish, I mean, you and I fished it, I think the first the first trip that they did down there, and we saw these really, really dark colorations and dark iterations of bonefish. It was just, it's a very unique fishery and a unique area to be able to experience and perhaps a window into what, you know, the Everglades and Southern Florida may have looked like 100 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a lot of options off the southern coast of Cuba. You've got JDR, the, the Gardens of the Queen, Jardines de la Reina, which is the flagship. You've got Cayo Largo, Isla de la Juventud. You've got uh, Canareos, which is the new one, which operates in the fall and winter. And then you've got both Zapata and the Las Salinas area in the Bay of Pigs. So a lot of options. Uh, almost all are liveaboard. Uh, the beauty of these uh are quick access, whether you're going straight south from Camagüey to JDR or for all the others going straight south from Havana, about two and a half hours to Zapesca port. So uh, pretty easy connections. Absolutely. And being that they're on the southern side of the island, um, 
this will lead us into talking to about some of the northern coast fisheries, but being that they're on the southern side of Cuba, they end up relatively protected from a lot of the strong winds that we experience in the northern coast fisheries. That's right. Well, since you brought it up, let's let's talk about the north. Um, we've got two operations on the, the northern coast of the main island of Cuba. The first is what's known as the Cayo Romano fishery. Yeah. So Cayo Romano, people get confused because it is sort of interchangeable with Cayo Romano and Cayo Cruz. Cayo Romano speaks to the greater area of inlets and inner lagoons and little islands all over the place, which you see off the northern coast, north of Camagüey. And Cayo Cruz speaks to this little tiny, beautiful little white sand key with three mega resorts on it off the northern coast. Cayo Romano and Cayo Cruz are really focused on permit and bonefish. And the bonefishing can be stellar. I mean, we're talking big bonefish. Big bones. Yeah. Not not seen in in the Caribbean since you know, the days of Los Roques and being able to fish in Venezuela, we're talking, you can occasionally find bonefish up to 10 and 11 pounds. I mean, really big guys. So really fantastic bonefish. And we largely um, attribute that to the fact that Hurricane Irma, when it moved through Cuba off the northern coast, it sat on the key of Cayo Cruz for eight hours and literally polished the fishery clean. Mm. Then it moved north and slammed Florida and caused so much damage, which was very regrettable. But we found that what it did to that fishery was it basically pressed a restart button. And the bonefish are the ones who really won. And, of course, permits show up and everybody else does. So Cayo Cruz and Cayo Romano are also known for some of the best wade fishing opportunities in Cuba. If you want to go down a lot of the Southern coast fisheries, you're fishing out of a skiff and deeper water, especially for tarpon, but Cayo Cruz, Cayo Romano, a lot of wade fishing opportunities. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of people do call me and ask me specifically, which ones are the best for wade fishing. This is the one along with Cayo Peradon to the West. But you're land-based, you're staying in a larger resort or hotel, um, and you're kind of headed back there every night with, you know, the other non-angling tourists that happen to be there on their all-inclusive packages. So it's a little different dynamic, correct? Yeah. Um, it's a, you stay in this cheesy all-inclusive resort, but it's got a bowling alley on site and a cigar, you know, bar and it's got three different restaurants, including a Mediterranean and a Japanese place, but they all serve the same food. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just the decor. <laughs> but the staff is lovely. Um, it's a 60 room hotel. It's really beautiful. It's got a, a an infinity pool that overlooks the flats on the second floor. Um, and it's right across the street from the skiffs. So literally a five minute walk to board your skiffs every day. But you're not getting that isolated experience that you would with the liveaboards. No, definitely yeah. not. And you may have some interesting visitations over to one of the two mega resorts next door full of interesting drunk Canadians, perhaps some errant Russians who have managed to sneak out on vacation. It's hard saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. cultural in these all inclusive resorts is may not what you may not be what you might think when you think cultural experience in Cuba. But the fishery is great. The fishery is The stellar. flats are great for wading, and there's great species there. And what I tell everybody is, hey, if you're going to these destinations, you're not going to Cuba for the food. You're going for the fishing. There you go. That's good advice. And and for Cairo Romano and Cayo Cruz, how do you get there? So, again, fly into Camagüey. It's two and a half hours, and transfers are included. I oftentimes get that question. Another option, if you're our Canadian friends to the north flying down, is to fly direct down to Cayo Coco, and that's also about an hour and a half, two hours away. And, you know, all joking aside, the resorts are actually very nice. They're relatively new. The rooms are nice. Mm -hmm. Single single rooms are relatively affordable. So it's a, it's a nice stay. It's just Different. It's an all-inclusive resort. Everybody yeah. wants this cute, kitschy little, you know, fishing lodge, lodge to stay in yeah. with 12 people. And that's not the case here, but the fishing makes it worth it. There you go. Well, good information and and certainly the right fit for certain people, especially if you want to wade fish and you want easy access. No yeah, doubt. absolutely. Well, the last destination, also a northern coast fishery, uh, Cayo Peradon, another fairly new offering. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, Fly Fishing the Run is uh, the entity who is operating this. And right now the pricing is really, really reasonably priced as they get their feet under them. But you fly into Comagüey, 
Again, it's about two and a half, three hours to get to Cayo Peradon, and it's 80, 70 to 80 clicks west of Cayo Romano, Cayo Cruz. Um, it's a relatively small fishery compared to the area of Cayo Cruz, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, the permit flats are really stellar. It's just gorgeous. It's um, certainly a wade opportunity, but, but you definitely want to make sure you've got serious wade boots for this fishery. It's coral, rock bottom, pretty sharp stuff. I was there just a couple of weeks ago during an off-weather week in March, which is not uncommon because of the northern winds that we get through that particular area in March. And um, in three days of fishing with, let's say my fourth day was bad weather, I think I saw 30 permit. You know, there were permit all over the place. And tarpon that are residential fish are in there. And then there's also this really cool, unique opportunity to to fish to trigger fish, which, you know, is not everybody's favorite species, but it's a new challenge. And it's pretty cool to see these big triggers tailing and wobbling around looking for crabs and what have you in the in the coral heads there. So certainly a new offering. But again, you stay in one of these mega resorts that has lots and lots of rooms. The staff couldn't be happier to have us there. Um, and every day you drive in this little e-cart thing to go to the to the dock to board the skiffs um but largely a waiting focus program beautiful beautiful permit flats and you said probably the best value and price point in cuba right now absolutely yeah low season pricing we're looking at like twenty six hundred dollars a person for next fall and it's stellar that's a deal my guide was bragging about how the f i needed to come back in may to see the migratory tarpon because oftentimes you can be wade fishing for permit or wade fishing for bones. And on these flats, if you're wade fishing for permit, you may see a laid up tarpon that's migrating through the area to be able to target. So potentially a wade fishing for tarpon opportunity, which I don't think we offer in very many places. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Well, obviously a lot of choices down there and for sure. a lot more information available for people who are, are interested and can contact you. Um, of course, question we get about every destination anywhere in the world is, when is the best time to go? What are the seasons for Cuba? And uh, what are some things you can share with our listeners as far as, as when you want to go fishing down there? I get that question all the time. And really, my answer is when it works for your calendar. I would avoid September because of hurricane season, although September still can offer some really great fishing. Um, the The fishery really... All the fisheries down there are fantastic year-round. Um, they do not got, get a lot of activity or action during the low season. Um, and the low season is basically all the way from July, mid-July, all the way into January in most areas. That being said, you know, those low season months, especially in the fall, can be a really great time to be able to get down there, have some stellar fishing, and you know, pay a fraction of the cost that you would during high season. High season used to be totally based on the tarpon migration and was a narrow window. And that's been expanded based on demand. And typically, it depends upon each fishery and each program, but typically high season starts sometime in April and runs all the way into July. Good to know, but very much a year-round fishery in Cuba. And I think a lot of people don't realize that or think about that. So, you know, when it's... Um, nasty and cold in North America in December or January, you know, even late fall can be a great time to get down there. And as you said, a good way to take advantage of some really attractive rates on these packages. 100%. And you know, the other thing that we haven't pointed out to anybody, I can't believe we've taken so long to say this is book early. Cuba books out completely. I mean, we're already booked uh, all of May, 2024, you're going to have a hard time finding a spot to get down there. So um, it's important to make sure to tee this up in advance. And if you are particularly looking for a specific week during peak season, book early. There you go. Good advice. As far out as you possibly can. Exactly. All right. Well, let's shift over a little bit and, and talk about gear and equipment for the saltwater opportunities down in Cuba. And yes, this can vary a bit by location and even by season, but generally you want to match your gear with the species that you're, you're going to be targeting. Um, and it's pretty standard gear. Let's start with bonefish. What are we looking at for the ideal bonefish setup? Sure. It's pretty standard. I mean, eight weight for bonefish, you know, I... I'm 
going through this at my office right now in preparation for my trip has a pile of rods and flies and bars and everything else. But ideally, on a daily basis, I like to go out armed with an eight weight for bonefish, a nine weight for permit. And then I bring a 10, 11, or a 12, whatever I have. I'm not necessarily going to go out and buy a brand new setup unless it's a bucket list trip. And I know that I'm going during prime tarpon season, but I want to have two heavier weight rods. And here's my rationale for that. I will approach the guides when I get there and say, hey, what are you guys seeing in the fishery right now? Like I've got a 10 and a 12 weight for tarpon. Which one should I rig for tarpon? And they'll inform me what they'd like me to fish for that for that week. And then the off, the off rod is a backup rod in case I break my tarpon rod. And then I set that up and rig it for CUDA. There you go. Well, for bones, an eight weight is ideal. Yep. Floating fly line. 100%. 100% floating fly lines. Um, Leaders, um, typically 12 pound. Yep. Okay. Sometimes even 16 if you're fishing deeper water, bigger bones. Correct. Um, And then flies. One of the things um, that we see is you fish a lot of, you can get away with fishing a lot of size two and size four bonefish flies down there. Yeah. you, You want some sixes as well, but you know, bonefish flies tend to be a little bit larger in Cuba than they, they are maybe uh, other Caribbean fisheries. 100%. And what I always tell my anglers who are traveling down there is make sure you've got the three, most importantly, make sure you have three different weight classes of your flies. We want no weight for when the tides are such that you're wade fishing back in super skinny water lagoons. We want just bead chain eyes on some, some of those. And then we want some weighted, weighted flies to be able to get down to the fish. The patterns are are not necessarily as critical. Not to say that these bonefish aren't picky, but they're kind of not picky. <laughs> I would warn people not to present their $8 El Flexo crab to a bonefish in Cuba because that bonefish is going to see that crab and inhale it, and you may never see that fly again. <laughs> so take your time with the bonefish because they are hungry. Well, yeah. And if you go down with a box of, of say, gotchas, gotcha clousers, maybe a few squimps, it's really all you need for most Cuban bone fishing situations. Size two and four, maybe mm-hmm. a few sixes yep. for, for skinnier water. But as you said, really important, different sink rates. So yes. let's take a gotcha, for example, in a size four. You want a gotcha for skinny water. You want one for kind of mid-depth. And then you want one with heavier barbell eyes for deeper water bone fish. But again, all the same pattern, same hook size. So really exactly. good to know for bones. Yep. And I like to pack so that I've got two of each of those, at least two of each of those, so that when my guide's like, ah, that's the pattern I want, I have the right weight given the condition. Otherwise, right. otherwise I might I might take some flack for the day. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, moving on to permit, um, a nine weight, perfect permit rod for Cuba. Yep. The best rod and fly line setup that allows you to be as accurate as possible, of course. <laughs> There you go. It's permit fishing. And it's all floating lines again for floating permit. Floating 100%. Yep. Yeah. Here we like uh, slightly heavier leaders and tippets, 16 to 20 pound, maybe a longer leader as well. Maybe going from like a nine foot to maybe a 12 foot leader. Yep. And then for flies, one thing that's interesting versus other Caribbean destinations where it's very crab focused, the Cuban guides are really big on their shrimp patterns. They are. Yes. And really, this is where you want to lean on somebody like yourself or myself when booking one of these trips and figuring out what the best permit flies is are for the time of year that you're going and where you're going. You know, I've got certain fisheries in Cuba where I want you to have an olive or a brown crab. I've got other fisheries where white and cream are the only way to go. Yeah. So it just depends upon where you're going, but a diversity of patterns is really a good thing. And I love, I love the squimps. I think that that's an excellent fly, and I've seen I've seen lots of fish, even snapper and other fish, eat eat, eat those up too. So a good good pattern to have in the box as well. And a box of shrimp flies for for permit for sure. You know the Puglisi spawning shrimp, Peterson shrimp. Um, there's a lot of good ones out there. Of course, the Avalon shrimp Avalon fly. Shrimp. You know, if you go with a whole box of different patterns, ninety nine percent of the time on morning one the guide's going to reach for that Avalon because it's what they're used to fishing and they've found a lot of success with it, but they love their Avalon flies down there. They do. They do. In fact, the Avalon fly came from Mauro Genervi, who uh, has been 
he worked at Cayo Largo, I think, for the better part of 10 or 15 years and tied him for about that long while he was there. But it is a really fabulous fly for uh, for a lot of the fisheries in Cuba. And it, that Avalon fly has caught a lot of permit down oh, there. Oh, yeah. For sure. And one of the reasons is because that's what the guides fish the most. But sure. it's a very effective fly. And you definitely want to have some different sizes and different sink rates of that Avalon as well as other shrimp patterns specifically for permit. Yep. Yeah, and then, of course, that nine-weight permit rod can also be a great snook rod when the opportunity presents itself. Yep, absolutely. Still floating lines, very important. Now, tarpon, you touched on this a minute ago. Um, heavier rod, especially if you're going during migratory tarpon season where you're going to find some of the larger fish. Um, an 11-weight is ideal. You can certainly fish a 10. If you own a 12, you can bring that. Um, the difference with the setup here, and I like what you said a moment ago about having two of the heavier rods, Um Floating lines as well as either sink tip lines or a full intermediate sinking line can be great because you may be targeting tarpon on the flats and shallow water, all visual, all sight fishing over white sand, let's say, or if they're just not there, but the guides know for a fact that they happen to be in these channels, you may put on a sinking tip or an intermediate line and fish the channels if you want to connect. So oftentimes, since you're fishing out of the boat, you can bring extra gear. I like to have two tarpon rods, one set up with that that floating line and one set up with a, a sinking system for fishing those deeper channels. 100%, you know, and and the intermediate line, I know that some people sort of get a little dismayed when they think, oh, I've got to fish an intermediate line. And it's like, well, if you have bad weather, you want that either intermediate line to still capitalize on the day. That's if right. you can't see the fish, that intermediate line is going to save you and may even produce some new species for you. I mean, you can catch all sorts of goofy fish out there, which I always find to be totally fun. <laughs> yeah. So a couple setups there. Flies for tarpon. Again, they're a little bit like the bonefish. They're they're pretty bitey tarpon. They're pretty grabby when it comes to, you know, flies that they see. Um, it's not as kind of specific as, say, the Florida Keys are. You can get away with a number of different patterns. Um, I'm a huge fan of, um, we'll give a shout out to Dougie McKnight. Um, Fly Tire has the Home Invader, just a deadly tarpon pattern down there. I love it. Um, tarpon toads, the larger Puglisi style bait fish flies like the Puglisi peanut butter in a variety of different colors. Those can be super effective, but you do want a, a pretty good selection of different tarpon flies. Each guide has his favorites. He's going to, you know, find the one that, that he likes the most or has enjoyed the most success with, but bring a good diversity of different sizes and different colors of tarpon flies and most importantly those two different setups with the floating line and either the sink tip or intermediate absolutely yeah. absolutely and i'd say you know make it a rainbow in there you know people always ask me about colors certainly purple and black is definitely a color combo you need to have in there aside from that go diversity and bring 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 the rainbow. Yeah, tan, yellow, orange. There are days Chartreuse. when they're just dialed on those. Absolutely. That's right. And then you touched briefly on some of uh, the other species. You know, it's it's great to bring a, a rod for cuda or sharks or snapper, kind of that extra species rod uh, for those, you know, floating lines typically, sometimes sink tip. Um, bring some cuda flies, the big tube flies, and bring some wire leader material or tip material. Really yeah, important. absolutely. And one of the setups that we, we sort of missed there with the tarpon is you want to make sure to have bite tippet 60 pound and 80 pound and if you're there's no need to pre-tie leaders or anything along those lines in cuba they are not afraid to make it a catching type of leader and play pretty heavy and pretty dirty that's fish straight 80 right off your fly 100%. line to the fly now if you're not comfortable with that as an angler yeah. that's totally fine go ahead and and let them know that that's not your preference and they're happy to 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 you know they don't want you popping you. off tarpon on class they tippet though. They want they, they'll go straight eighty <laughs> every chance afraid. they get. Yeah, so good to know. Spools of of forty, sixty, and eighty definitely bring those for the tarpon. Yep. All right. Well, you know, all of this combined um, brings up the fact, and this is really important for any trip anywhere in Cuba, that you have to bring one hundred percent of what you need. The operators and guides down there have nothing as far as gear goes. You can't count on anything being available or accessible in Cuba. There's certainly no fly shops anywhere in Cuba. And, you know, extra backup rods and whatnot at the different operations, really, it doesn't exist. Um, so you want to bring everything all of your primary equipment, you want to bring backup fly lines and a couple extra rods, all of your own leader and tippet, and of course, a really good selection of flies. Um, you know, the only thing that the guides might have is whatever the client that was there before you may have left in the boat. That's right. So exactly. bring it all. Bring it all. 
Bring it all and bring extra. If there's a doubt that you think you might need it, bring it. Yeah. There's nothing available. Nothing available. And one of the things that's worth mentioning, especially as it relates to Cuba, is um, we always recommend that our travelers fly down with their rods and reels and one change of clothing. They can check their bag for the rest of the stuff. But that way, if you get to where you're going and all you've got is your rods and reels, and one set of clothing, you're going to be okay and still fish for the week. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning is you really you need to be prepared to check your rods and reels on departure out of Cuba. Whether it's out of Comagüey or out of Havana, it it's irrelevant. They will not allow you to carry on your gear. So it's important to either bring a bag. I mean, I personally travel with one of those Patagonia sled bags and my fish pond rod carrier fits right in there if I put it in first with an empty bag and then I pack around that for the departure. But going down, there's no way. I carry that I carry that thing on. There's nothing worse than getting that to Cuba and not having advice. your rod. Yeah, that that is key. So going down to Cuba, carry on when you're departing. Plan on checking it so you don't get hassled and harassed at their equivalent of TSA and yep. security. And they just won't they just won't allow it, you know. Really good advice. I also take, you know, maybe six flies and put that in my carry in on. my carry-on. Yeah. You are technically allowed by TSA to have flies aboard, but I'm not gonna run the risk of having my whole entire, you know, thousand dollar fly box taken yeah. away by default of having it on my no that's checked. really good advice too <laughs> typically what i'll do is i'll take you know a, a small handful of bonefish permit and tarpon flies i'll put them in a ziploc yep. and i'll tuck it into my carry-on and then my boxes of flies go in my checked luggage but you know along with sunglasses a set of fishing clothes um, a little bit of sunscreen and of course all my rods reels leader and tippet that gets carried on. Yep. If your bag does get lost or delayed, you're still in the game. Exactly. We've talked about this on other previous episodes um, on how to pack, but that's a great system. Um, but then on the way out of Cuba, just plan on checking it all. Check it all. And all you right. can always, if you're really uncomfortable with that, you can always pick it up again in Miami and carry it on domestically, which I understand. It's a lot of money in a small bag. You don't want it necessarily jostled and thrown around under the under the airplanes. But you do need to check upon departure. Um, one reminder, because I know I've had some miserable people who have called me and said, hey, I can't believe I did this. Pliers are not allowed on airplanes. You you think that that's part of your kit that you have to have with you? Check your pliers. Yeah. It's an, a really expensive and really unfortunate It hurts to get those, those $400 uh, <laughs> Van Stahl pliers taken away at security. You shed more than one tear on that yeah. loss. Yeah. Well, that's great overview of, of the main species, rods, reels, leaders, flies. What are some other key pieces of equipment for Cuba that people are going to want to make sure they have as part of their kit? You mentioned sunglasses. I mean, that's just such a that's such a huge deal. And I always pack at least two pairs of sunglasses in case one goes in the drink on accident. I also always bring a low light pair just in case. I mean, I want to maximize my chance. I've got yeah, I've got one week in Cuba yep. over the next four or five months. I want to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Low light glasses are, are key for overcast days. 100%. Um, and there's a lot of good ones out there. You know, Smith, um, Bahio, Maui Gem, um, Costa, of course, they make one called the, a Sunrise Silver Mirror. That's a great low light lens that yep. is always in my kit. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And, you know, I, it's worth mentioning that you you talked about earlier things that could be brought down or left behind in Cuba. If you have an old pair of shades that you don't wear so much anymore, your guides will thank you upside down, left and right. Now that doesn't mean that it constitutes or replaces a cash tip to them. But if you have used glasses or have glasses that you'd like to tip or leave as part of a tip for your guide, they will totally appreciate that. Yeah. But, um, to add to that, you definitely want to make sure you've got a raincoat. Um, I have never been colder than, you know, July in Cuba after a rainstorm. <laughs> so pack a raincoat, make sure it's in your dry bag, your boat bag, your daily boat bag every single day. Um, doesn't do any good back on the liveaboard. No, it really doesn't. I mean, it it's in your bag technically. Um, you know, same thing with just a little first aid kit. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of anglers don't necessarily consider first aid when they're out on a skiff, but things can go south. And when they go south, it's better Again, to have that with you instead of back on the livable. Yeah, a little travel first aid kit. Exactly. Anywhere you go is good to have. Anywhere. Yeah. Um, 
I also bring a little kit with TP and wipes in the case that that comes up because you know it you know it does, um, and it's good to have that with you. Sunblock, of course, chapstick, buff, hat, all the basics. You really want to make sure you're covered up with with um, whatever you need for the sun. Mm-hmm. My my pro tip as it relates to the tops of your feet because I'm pretty pale and the tops of my feet get really scalded. Is I get those kids sticks that you typically slather all over your kid's nose. And I actually use those for the tops of my feet. Yeah. That can ruin a trip in a hurry. Day one, just, you know, scalding burn on the top Blisters. of your feet. Ugh. Oh, it's awful. For sure. Um, a good dry bag or waterproof backpack for the boat where you take all of these items we're talking about, your raincoat, you know, extra sunglasses, your fly boxes, everything goes in that waterproof bag. Yep. Really nice for the boat. Um, mentioned good rain gear, extra sunglasses, low light sunglasses, wading boots, right? Depends on where you're going in Cuba, yep. but chances are good. You're going to want to have some footwear to get out of the boat, whether it's even for a quick picture or to walk the flats or wherever good yep. to uh, match up the type of wading boot you need with where you're going. Exactly. Yeah. We don't need you packing these, you know, 12 pound wading boots if you're not necessarily going to need them. So touch base with me before you go on the trip and I can make the recommendations yeah. about what you need. Um, one of those little travel speakers. I love to have a little clip on travel speaker. JBL makes a really cool one. I know there's lots of other companies, but that can be a nice, um, nice way to lighten the, lighten the day and, you know, burns, burns through, <laughs> through some time when you're searching for permit, yeah. um, or for bonefish. And, um, yeah, just make sure you just bring absolutely everything and anything with you. But those are really the those feel like the top things that you just want to make sure you have accounted for and are um, and are in your bag. There you go. Good advice. And uh, I know that for all the trips, you provide a very detailed and specific gear and packing list uh, of all equipment. You know, leaders tip it flies. Everything's provided so that people can really prepare and show up in the game with the right equipment. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this or you'll talk about this probably in, in this season is now with this fly shop, we have the opportunity to be able to go down there and help you actually get fully kitted for the trip. So if there's any doubt, anything you need, we have the means to be able to make recommendations. You know, if you don't like what I like, that's okay, but I have a system and if it works for you, I'm happy to share the products that I really enjoy using when I'm out on the flats as well. There you go. Nice shout out for the yellow dog fly shop. Thank eh, you for that. They're pretty great out there. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's kind of bring it home with some closing thoughts on Cuba. Kristen, um, you are always quick to say, and you're really good about this. I think in talking with, with clients that Cuba is not a destination for everyone. Talk more about that. You know, if you're going to Cuba, you go for the experience when you get there, you need to just relax, enjoy, don't get too alarmed about anything, and really go for the experience. And that's that's going to be the best possible way to enjoy the trip. That's right. Have the right expectations. That's right. You know, I want to read something that we actually published several years ago in the Yellow Dog catalog that kind of brings all that home. And, uh, and give me just a minute to read this because I think it sums it up nicely. But... Uh, Be present, enjoy the experience, expect at times to wait in line, expect the phones and internet to barely function, if at all. You can look forward to some great local food as well as some really bad ham and cheese sandwiches. You'll find amazing music, nonstop dancing, Cuban cigars, and the very best mojitos on the planet. Know that things are occasionally going to go wrong and enjoy the random way things come back together once you adjust your plans. The boat or resort may run out of beer halfway through the week, but chances are good there will be no shortage of great Cuban rum. Expect to see some gorgeous flats, wade and pull pristine turquoise waters, and mostly find plenty of fish that, by normal standards, see very little pressure. The tarpon are way more bitey and willing to eat than in most destinations. The bonefish are big, but still easy to spook. And the permit? Well, they're still permit. But that is fishing in Cuba. And, um, it is an absolutely incredible place. Uh, this has been phenomenal. Thank you for sharing so much information with our listeners and all of your insights on this uh, amazing destination. Well, it's been a pleasure to be able to sell and send so many anglers down over what's now been quite a few years. 
<laughs> well, you do it right for sure. And uh, that is it for another episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel and the search for adventure. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next fishing trip and to stay up to date on the latest travel news and developments. You can also visit the Waypoints podcast archives for dozens of previous episodes that cover the amazing world of destination angling. Join us for our next episode of Waypoints, and remember, life is short and no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Waypoints is produced by Brian Gregson, with music provided by the Steep Canyon Rangers. Visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more destination profiles, travel news, and expert advice, and be sure to join us for our next episode.